Okay. Hey everyone tuning in and welcome to another episode of Vanilla Weiss and the Nostalgic Nerds. Today we've got a returning guest and we've got a very special guest for you returning for another episode. We got South Florida's famous L baby, Lindsay Denae White. Hi guys. And? And we've got a super special guest. We've got 80s and 90s child star Alex Vincent, who you may know as Andy from the first two Child's Play movies. He had his friend till the end. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today, Alex. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, you know, 32 years ago, Betal said that we'd be friends to the end, and evidently he wasn't kidding. (laughs) He's still very much part of my life. Yeah. But yeah, I heard that you were smart and you avoided watching the horrendous remake that they recently came out with. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I don't know if it's smart or not, but it was just not something I was interested in. Yeah, well, take it from Lindsay and I, you made the right choice. Um, the Yeah, the remake yeah. was absolutely horrendous. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, in, in today's divisive world, I think people are eager to have arguing opinions about things, so it, it certainly has its fans, but I, I think the... Uh, majority of fans of our franchise kind of rejected it on principle well, much like i suppose i did well yeah and it was probably the absolute most inaccurate and unfaithful remake to the original i've ever seen like um chucky literally didn't even really have a mind of his own in the remake he was a robot yeah, yeah they turned him into like a programmed killer robot <laughs> well the way i see it and you know i not to disparage anyone involved in it. And certainly I have no animosity towards any of the actors. I mean, they were just doing their job. In fact, the, the kid Gabriel who played Andy was, uh, sent me a very, very kind message on Instagram, very mature for his age. Um, so yeah. And I, I, lo- I love Aubrey Plaza. Like I, I have no issues with any of them or anything, but I do kind of get the sense from everything I've heard about it, that they had written their own, script and their own story and their own movie and somewhere along the line some producer decided that if they use our characters and imagery and title they'd sell more tickets so i think they kind of slapped that on as an afterthought Absolutely. of their original concepts so. because none of them had to do with well and also they made andy 13 instead of six in the remake which makes sure. no sense um I, I have yet to meet a 13-year-old boy who still plays with dolls. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this was a robot, I guess, so... Yeah, I guess you know. maybe it's cooler, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, at that age, my brother and I were making fun of dolls for being so babyish. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, my mother got into the business of selling, like, old Patty Playpal and Shirley Temple-type dolls. Uh, so growing up, I lived in a house filled with dolls. So it's a good thing that the film had no uh, uh, traumatic impact yeah, you on me. That. That's crazy. That Dan wanted to ask you that exact question: if that movie scared you at all as a child. 
Well, that's the number one question of my life. Oh, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean that's okay. I, I understand why it's a popular question, but no, not at all. I mean, I, I, I was I was a really bright kid, uh, much brighter than I am now. Albeit that's <laughs> maybe rather thoroughly intentional. But uh, I was a pretty bright kid, so I had a good grasp on what we were doing. I also had the entire script memorized all of my lines, all of everyone else's lines. I worked with a really good acting coach. So and not to mention that all those scenes that ended up scary in the film, you know, we worked on for half a day and you end up doing the same thing 35 times in a row to try to get the doll to move the right way. Uh, <clears throat> there's really no opportunity for it to be scary. It, it was, it was more than anything, just fascinatingly cool to see this like million dollar electric puppet. Million dollars? Um, oh my god! Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it actually cost, but it, you know, the technology was groundbreaking. Of um, course, there were seven or eight guys controlling the doll at any time. Uh, there were wires that came out from underneath them. Um, you know, it was. We saw all of this before anyone including us, had ever seen Chucky on film. So we didn't even know how this would look real when all was said and done, because it certainly didn't look real to any of us. It, but yeah, and I would say you, you know, the character of Andy played just as important a role in the development of those movies as Chucky himself, in my opinion. That's why part four and five sucked, because... A huge part of what made the first three so good were the whole like chemistry between Andy and Chucky, and the whole start story arc about Andy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I appreciate that, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to say four and five sucked because I think, and I've said this many times, but you know, if if you're if you have an ongoing franchise that's five, six, seven films long over three decades. And it's about a two and a half foot doll killing people. You can't continue to take yourself seriously, movie in, movie out. It would just be ridiculous. Yeah, uh, I think making fun of ourselves and kind of embracing how silly of a concept it is and finding the comedic elements of it and exploiting that for a couple films actually made sense. It's the only way that we're able to go back to some sort of scary concept with the story now um because because we were willing to make fun of ourselves or i guess they were but yeah i mean i, I appreciate that and i also agree i think that the uh, built-in sympathy for andy and his mother and his childhood uh juxtaposed against this horrific killer uh you know only emphasized his ability to scare people is because you cared about Andy. You didn't, you didn't want him to get hurt. It's not like most horror films these days where the kid is kind of creepy and you question his guilt the whole time and there's not really much sympathy. No one really cares who gets killed in a horror film because they don't take the time to build sympathy for those characters. Um, but yeah, so I think that dynamic of the relationship between Andy and his mother, especially having just recently dealt with the death of his father and her husband and this kind of shattered family unit that is trying to, you know, find some peace in the world disrupted by uh, 
maniacal serial killer. You know, I think that that all led to its effectiveness. And the the first two sequels, what made them really good sequels is that um, you really felt for Andy and the complete hell and back he had been through since the first movie, like numerous foster homes and eventually boot camp. It's like that was part of what was so intriguing about the movie. It made you feel really sad and sorry for him for going through hell and back all because his mom bought from a homeless swindler. <laughs> yeah, just trying to save a few bucks, see yeah. what happens, you know? Yeah, it's sad. It all started with that homeless guy literally ruined two lives. <laughs> yeah. Well, you couldn't get good deals on Amazon back then. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's true. Yeah, we should blame Jeff Bezos for not being yeah. old enough at the time. <laughs> Yeah, and let's 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 not give that guy too much credit. I mean, a store that sells things to everybody—that's just about the second idea after the internet, isn't it? Like, right. Yeah, it's, pretty much. It's not so. really that. It's not. It's not a hundred fifty billion dollars worth of an idea, right there. <laughs> and it's put so many business. Not only put so many businesses out of business, but it's also made people so lazy. I mean, I, I liked the experience of being able to like go shopping at a strip mall or a regular mall. Um, and now people just sit on their ass and order whatever they want on the computer. Sure. I mean, we could say that, but all three of us have Amazon Prime and are very thankful for that. So yeah. Yeah. Do you have a Dan, right? Um, no, but I have Netflix. But yeah, I still have enough DVDs to literally last me like every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely old school with the DVDs. So we wanted to know like where you were from and how you got casted to be Andy. Okay. Um, well, I grew up in North Jersey, um, right over the bridge or through the tunnel to New York City, about five miles from New York City. Um, although up there, five miles works out to about a 45 minute drive um, with the traffic and everything. But yeah, I, I grew up right over on the other side of the bridge. So I would go on auditions in New York City from about the age five to 12, 13, three or four times a week. Um, and yeah, I, I, I saw a girl, a neighbor on TV in a commercial when I was like five and it was someone I knew personally. And then I saw her on TV and I thought that was the coolest thing. And it gave me the, uh, inspiration and excitement about doing stuff like that. Like at five years old, it was actually my idea, not my parents. Oh wow. Um, That's different. Yeah. But I mean, it's certainly, I, you know, I, I couldn't have gone on a single audition without their of support. Course interest in making it happen too so it very much was a family thing but it was my idea to start and it was my idea to stop um and my mother was supportive of both decisions well and a lot of times that's the best choice to like stop while you're on top because yeah we've seen with so many other artists of all different crafts that them staying too long in the craft their quality decreases a lot and they realize that they're so like last generation and not the current one well 
I mean, that's a kind way to look at it, but I, I don't think I was on top of anything. I think I, I got fortunate to get cast in something that, that, that you blew know, up. It was that so blew big. Up. Yeah. yeah. But then I continued to audition for five years and not book anything. And then you had um, a Netflix so. series. They, they did like a child's play reboot on Netflix. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's Chucky fans all over the world that would watch it forever if they could. What Child's Play reboot on Netflix? Didn't you, you do a Netflix? Um, um, I know there was a Chucky movie on Netflix, but I'm not sure. Were you in it? Yeah, I think you were in it. it well, if, like, you, if you mean if you mean Curse of Chucky, and there Cults you of go. Chucky, yes. Yeah, I mean those are part of the franchise. Those are continuations of the story. That's part six and part seven. Uh, they were not Netflix films. They were on Netflix, but they were they were just direct to DVD, Blu-ray type of projects that got picked up by Netflix. Uh, and so, yeah, a lot of people did see it that way. They weren't, they weren't exactly Netflix projects. Mm -hmm. um, they were st still Universal Studios feature films. Uh, just the release of it, the way they handled it and releasing it. You know, I, I mean, it costs, it costs a ton of money to put things in theaters these oh, days. Absolutely, And yeah. our budget for those last two films was limited by basically any standard um they, they were i think five million dollar budgets mm -hmm. in, in their entirety including promotion and all of that um so you know that they, they were still very much linear and parts of the overall story of the franchise of those seven films but the release of them was just a little different now the netflix version of both curse of chucky which i did a uh, I guess a cameo, you would call it, scene at the end, post-credits of part one. Uh, and then I was in Cult of Chucky in several scenes. But Christina Lee, Kyle from Child's Play 2, had a post-credit scene uh, at the end of Cult of Chucky. And neither of those post-credit scenes are on the Netflix versions because they're only on the unrated versions and they show the rated version on Netflix. So anyone who watched Cult of Chucky, for example, on Netflix. Well, let's say they watched Curse of Chucky on Netflix, and then they watched Cult of Chucky on Netflix. They missed my post credit scene entirely. So the beginning of Cult of Chucky, where Andy has this severed Chucky head that he keeps in a safe to torture whenever he's having a bad night. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> yeah, for a lot of people, though, they didn't. Oh. If they missed my scene at the end and they only watched things on Netflix, they were thoroughly confused by that, you know? Yeah. So, um, are you still in touch with any of the cast? Sure. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, Christina Lee and I are like brother and sister in real life. It was uh, that Kyle? That's Kyle. Yeah. We talk, um, just about every day, every other day. We talk all the time. Um, Catherine Hicks and I, we don't talk that often, but we're very close. Is that, was been. that the mother? That's the mother who plays Karen in part one. Uh, she had actually never played a mother and was not a mother at that time in 1987 when we filmed it. Uh, so this was her first time ever portraying a mother. So she really took she the time to kind job. of bond with me and get close with me, which, yes, is ironic because she ended up being known as a 
television mom from Seventh Heaven, but <laughs> at, at the time she had not done anything like that. So she really kind of went out of her way to bond with me. Um, and that's a friendship that has lasted 30 years. Uh, Fiona and Jen Tilly and uh, Chris Sarandon, they're all, they're all people that I consider friends that what, I talk to. What about the guy who played the cop or the guy who was the voice of Chucky? No, the voice of Chucky's Brad Dorif. Um, Chris Randon played, yes, the cop detective Mike Norris in the first one. He's also Jerry Dandridge. He's also um, from uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, Jack Skellington. Um, he's also Prince Humperdinck uh, from Princess Bride. Yeah, he and I, we, you know, we do conventions. Because of these horror conventions, I get an opportunity to see other cast members a few times, you know, aside from this year when everything's been shut down. But usually I see all of them a couple times throughout the year. And Don Mancini, the writer and director of, of the last few films, and the writer of all of them, he and I are also very close, talk to each other very often. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's really a family thing at this point. Uh, we're, we're talking, you know, for for them – this is something that has been in their lives since they were teenagers or in their 20s. For me, it's been in my life since I'm six years old. Uh, you know, we all kind of went through these past three decades as as a family. You know, I mean, there was a big gap where I didn't hear from any of them for many years. But then social media and horror conventions, the combination of the two kind of brought us all back together. And then we made those sequels. So. Yeah, we're all still very much a family. Do you ever make it down here to South Florida for any events like that? Not, not too often. Really, the only Florida convention that I do is Spooky Empire, which started down in Fort Lauderdale, but it's been in Orlando the past like 10 years. Um, <clears throat> I do that show all the time. I think I've done it like 25 times now. I'm good friends with Guy Petey who runs it. So because he lets me continue to come back and I'm, I've done more of them than any other guest, uh, I kind of just, in respect of that, only do that Florida appearance. You said so, that's in the panhandle? No, no, it's in Orlando. Oh, yeah, that's only like three and a half hours north of us. Yeah, it's called Spooky Empire. It's real popular in the area. They've been, They've done like 27 shows or something like that um two a year usually and yeah it's it's a good time it's a kind of a party con vibe um but yeah that's that's really my only florida appearance that i do the rest of the world i i make appearances all over the place but as far as florida goes i kind of keep it to just that show yeah because you don't like to fly well, who really does like to sit in a chair at 30,000 feet above the ground? Yeah. Um, but, no, I have I have problems with my ears from flying. Uh, I know a lot of people get that issue. Where yeah, they get off I, I'm one of them. <laughs> their ears are clogged. Yeah, but for me, that sometimes lasts several months. Um, and you're into music. Big I time. am. I, I own a recording studio, and I work with audio every day. So when you... when you know, your left ear sounds like you just got out of a swimming pool and it's filled with water and that lasts for months. Uh, it's not really so good for my audio career. 
not to mention my insanity because that can drive you absolutely insane and for me it's like even like claustrophobic feeling because I'm like trapped in my head for months on end so yeah I try to limit uh, my flights but you know I still end up on a normal year getting on 20 planes a year I just try to keep them to direct flights if I can and I take all these precautions when I fly like like you should never sleep during takeoff or landing. You should be awake and swallowing water and chewing gum. And I take a decongestant, decongestant, and I wear uh, those airplane earplugs and to take like Sudafed beforehand and nasal spray. It's a it's a whole freaking process. But, yeah, I agree. I hate flying too. Um. Yeah. I would like to travel, but that is the one part of traveling I really hate is that plane seat, a plane ride is so uncomfortable. Um, I'll never forget the hell when I flew 12 and a half hours to Israel and I made the mistake of not walking around sitting the whole flight. By the time I got off, my legs were so like rock hard numb. (laughs) Yeah, I've been on a couple of flights that long. It, that is an experience and a half. I mean, I I flew once to Chile, South America. That was 14 hours. I flew back and forth to Japan. Those are 14-hour flights. Wow, lucky. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's asking a lot on, on your body to, yeah. to deal with that. But, um, you know, I, 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 hate, I, I, I do hate the traveling part, but I love being in new places. And because of these horror conventions, because of these movies I made as a kid, I mean, I've made appearances in about 40 of the 50 states and in Germany, Japan, England, Ireland, a couple other places that I can't think of, all over Mexico, Canada. What's your Um, favorite out of all of them, out of all the places you've been? Well, I love Amsterdam so much. Oh, I mean, so did my brother. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not just for the pot or whatever. I mean, there's plenty of pot all over the place. And but, the red uh, light district. <laughs> yeah, joking. there's plenty of that all over the place if you look too, I guess. But not really. It doesn't really interest me. But the city is just gorgeous. I mean, the city is just so beautiful. And, and you know, you can get pot dispensaries all over Florida and most states right now. But there's not like cool lounge places that you can go hang out and drink coffee and smoke some bud and like listen to cool music and you know that that the whole coffee shop experience that they have over there for someone like me who's been smoking pot since they're 13 years old um it's just it's kind of embraces that counterculture more than anywhere else like it's 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 just the experience of being able to go to these all different themed kind of coffee shops and get some good weed and get some good espresso and just kind of hang out. And the people like, are good. The people are great. Um, the city is just gorgeous. I mean, like stunning. I, I absolutely love it there. And I've never done a horror appearance there. I almost did once, but I've done several in Germany. And whenever I do one in Germany, I fly into Amsterdam, take a train over to the appearance, take a train back to Amsterdam and fly home. And I consider that two Amsterdam trips, which is why I've gotten up to 16 visits. So, now, so. were you a fan of horror movies, or are you still? No. No, he's actually not a horror fan. When no, I first no. asked him, he's like, I, I'm not really a fan. I'm like, wow. 
So when you got casted for, you know, to play Andy, it was probably, were there a whole bunch of, of uh, younger boys sure. trying to get the part? Sure. If they cast in uh, New York and L.A. So there were hundreds of kids that went, went out for that role. Um, yeah, so it was just one that I got lucky on. You know, yeah. I, I auditioned for plenty of other things. Uh, sometimes I'd get callbacks, and sometimes I wouldn't. Um, but almost anything that was casting in New York from 1988 until 1993, I went on an audition for. So. Yeah, and what I always loved about Chucky, unlike a few other horror film horror characters he was actually legitimately pure evil like you got somebody like jason who's really not evil who's a just a vengeful mama's boy yeah well you know I, this is charles lee ray himself was yeah despicable in every way he was um, a serial rapist he was a murderer he what was, did they call him the north shore strangler the, yeah the lake shore strangler um, and I think, you know, most of his victims were women, um, if not all of them. Um, but yeah, he was, he was a, you know, Brad Dorff, who does the voice of Chucky and, and understands the character very well, has said many times at these panels that I do with him at conventions, uh, that something along the lines, not a direct quote, but he says something like, uh, Charles Lee Ray has no problem looking at a human being and turning them just into me. <laughs> was that, so, was that so, him at the very beginning when he was in human form? Yes, yes, yeah. He's an incredibly talented actor. He was, I think he won an Oscar. He's definitely nominated. I think he won for Best Supporting Actor for uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, he's, he's a terrific actor, very intense and, and very, very... Um, serious about the craft of acting it means everything to him and it's evident in not only how he is on film but just how he carries himself in general um you know brad and i are we're clo close in a sense that we've known each other for three decades but he's he's not uh, the easiest person to get close with not because he's a dick or anything he's not at all but he's just a an introvert um you know very uh very within his own head. And I think people like that are, are incredibly, have the capability of being incredibly gifted in all forms of art. Ian, um, that's how my brother is. And he's gifted at the guitar and singing and like you, with you and music and stuff like that. So and it, it also goes to show that sometimes the absolute most talented artists are not the A-listers, but the ones who are lesser known but really take pride in the roles they play or the craft that they do? Well, yeah. I mean, there, I think it's a healthy mix. I think there are a lot of A-list Hollywood actors that genuinely adore the craft of, of portraying characters. And, um, and there are others that got fortunate and got very famous and I've just kind of continued to parlay that and some people are able to just uh, work on the backs of their good looks and to their dedication to going to the gym and there are others that uh, are just you know 
undeniably talented as actors. Uh, and a lot of those people end up being character actors where you've seen them in, you know, hundreds of things. You just don't always know their name. Not everybody knows their name, but those are some of the best actors in the business. Yeah, exactly. Because the way uh, a lot of my favorite celebrities are ones that are not like household names, but whose work that they did do, I absolutely love. Like, the, um, the the guy who actually helped me start this podcast, which is who's a really good friend of mine. Do you know who Danny Cooksey is from Different Strokes and Terminator Two? And I don't know. But I probably know his face, and that's kind of exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know him by name, but I'm sure I, I'm sure I know his face. In Terminator Two, I assume you saw that, right? I have. Yes. He was the kid with the red mullet on the dirt bike, John Connor's friend. Okay. I don't exactly remember. I, Eddie Furlong's a good friend, though. I, I've done a bunch of conventions with him. He's a good dude. Um, Such a great child actor. Speaking of great child actors, he, yeah, Terminator Two and American History X. You can't beat that track record. And Brain Scan. Yeah, and Detroit Rock City, another great yeah. movie. Yeah, I think Brain Scan is very underrated. Uh, really good film. That's something I'll have to see now. Yeah, it's really good. It's about. A kid who gets this like cd-rom virtual game kind of thing and i i think the line between reality and virtual world is blurred and uh I, you know i think what happens in the game kind of happens in real life uh, it's a fascinating film he's good but yeah um, he's one who, uh, his career could have lasted into adulthood, but it goes to show that how good an actor somebody is sometimes only goes so far. And I think that the case with most child actors, of very few of them really remain in 